welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is Tuesday, the 13th of July, 2020, and I'm joined here in the studio by my guest today, Pastor Eric Foley, who is CEO of the Voice of the Martyrs Korea, a non-governmental organization which regularly sends Bibles to North Korea to talk about uh, his organization and its work and uh, his current um, concerns with the South Korean government or vice versa. Uh, thanks for joining me today, Pastor oh, thank Foley. Thank you, Jacko. Uh, first of all, tell us about your organization, Voice of the Martyrs Korea, what it does. Sure. Voice of the Martyrs Korea is an organization that my wife and I co-founded about 18 years ago. Uh, people may be familiar with the name Voice of the Martyrs because there's 15 different independent Voice of the Martyrs organizations around the world. And although each of us are autonomous and completely independent, we share a common founder who was Pastor Richard Wormbrandt, who was a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned under the communist. Uh, during the time of the Cold War. Uh, his, his imprisonment was completely due to his Christian activity. And so true to his work, Voice of the Martyrs Around the World today continues to partner with underground Christians in the more than 70 countries where Christians are persecuted. For Voice of the Martyrs Korea, our primary work is with the persecuted Christians in Asia, especially East Asia, primarily North Korea, and then secondarily in China, and now uh, with the former CIS countries, because even in Russia mm -hmm. and those CIS countries, persecution is once again on the uptick. So we're not a mission organization. Uh, I'm not a missionary, but rather we're partners of underground North Korean Christians. Can, can you explain for our listeners briefly, when you say underground Christians, mm. underground churches, what do you mean? Do you mean physically below the surface of the earth? Uh, in some cases, that's true, but the, the term actually refers to um, underground in the sense of being uh, organizations that operate either without legal sanction or in opposition uh, to uh, criminal law in their country. So in 70 countries, a little more than 70 countries around the world, there are currently restrictions uh, extending to total bans on Christian activity. And uh, certainly that's the case in North Korea. Purportedly, North Korea has freedom of religion and mm -hmm. its government is has uh, indicated to the United Nations that it publishes a number of religious texts, and that'll factor in our conversation a little bit because one of those texts is the Bible. Yeah. Uh, okay, so basically these are uh, uh, people who are Christians and, and organizations that are Christian but without state sanctions. So they Correct. may be illegal in a formal sense, uh, there may be a law that bans them, or they may simply be operating outside the, the realms of legality but without necessarily being illegal. Yeah, I think the word NGO really describes it well. You know, um, NGO means non-governmental organization. And one of the things I'm sure we'll talk about today is often, unfortunately, that's construed as anti-governmental. Mm. Uh, but truthfully, the organizations that we partner with in these countries uh, are organizations, at least in our work, uh, all of the activity is related to Christian ministry. It's all related to Christian teaching and uh, worship and discipleship and other Christian practices. So we are ourselves don't do any uh, work that is uh, related to um, humanitarian or advocacy kind of work. All of that is important. It's just not our small little corner of the world. In, okay, and that actually work. brings me to my next question. What does the Voice of the Martyrs Korea not do? So we know it doesn't do development or, or advocacy or aid work. What else does it not do? Right. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've never thought about explaining that way. Normally when you give an elevator speech, you try to explain all in a short time what you do do. What don't we do? So um, our activity is non-political, at least it 
in, in terms of how that's popularly described. Mm-hmm. We're not advocating for a particular political position. Our experience has been we're not uh, we're neither better nor worse treated, depending upon, you know, who's in the Blue House uh, here in Korea. So we don't do political work. Uh, the only advocacy that we do is, is that when Christians en- end up in prison, there are times that we um, we will publicly bring their case to the attention of either governments around the world and or the public, uh, primarily through our our work in public relations, um, mm-hmm. releasing information to the media. But yeah, there's a you know a lot of great North Korean organizations that do humanitarian aid. Uh, we don't connect with them. I don't know if you're familiar with the M.C. Escher diagram of you know M.C. Escher, the sure. great. Uh, and he so he he has a diagram that shows the staircase, and some mm-hmm. people walk on the bottom of the staircase, and some walk on the top, and they never meet. They never meet. Well, that would be our experience with people doing, for example, medical work inside North Korea mm-hmm. or or providing food. Uh, we think that that's uh, important work, but we never meet them because it would be very dangerous for them. Right. Back in 2014, the North Korean government, in its report to the United Nations, described missionary, missionary activity or Christian activity as acts of terror. And so North Korea would describe us as terrorists. Terrorists, yeah. And so um, uh, as a result, uh, organizations that do uh, work in cooperation with the North Korean government have not, not found it particularly helpful to connect with us. Now, in media reports, um, certainly uh, very recently in media reports, uh, about people sending things into North Korea against the wishes of the North Korean government and sometimes against the wishes of the South Korean government, your group, Voice of the Martyrs Korea, is often lumped in together with the group's Fighters for a Free North Korea, led by uh, prominent defector Park Sang-hak, and Kunsem, by he, led by his brother Park Jong-ho. Uh, how does VOM Korea differ from those two groups? Well, we, first of all, we have no formal or, or informal relationship, for that matter, with either of those groups or with Iman Bok, who is the, the other uh, person who often is in, in this group of four. Right, Iman Bok, I forgot to mention yeah. him, yeah. So we have, we have no relationship with them. We, we know them and we know of them, but we don't have any kind of operational connection to them. And so in regard to what makes us different is, is that um, in our organization, uh, we are not launching any kind of leaflets or flyers that, that contain either uh, current uh, current events or political information or what unfortunately often is described as anti-North Korea propaganda. Mm-hmm. So uh, cartoons, right. caricatures, uh, photoshopped photographs of leaders of North Korea, that kind of thing. This is not what you do. No. In fact, what we do is, um, uh, although it's a podcast, it's hard to see, but it's exactly what you have right in front of you, which is we launch the same thing all the time, which is we launch uh, portions of the Bible right. uh, that, that were... So uh, not full Bibles. No. These are actually, as you can see, they're quite quite small and thin, yeah. and um, they're um, e- uh, each year we will we will select a different section. We'll change the color on the cover. But always, okay. yeah, yeah, and that, and that's the reason for that is it allows us when North Koreans let us know, hey, I received, I got a Bible from you guys, yeah. and we can then say what was in it, what color was it, and then that will help us to determine, for example, what year it was. Mm. But the only thing we launched, the only thing we've ever launched, is these Bibles. These are the Bibles that are that that come from the translation that was done by the North Korean government and uh, published by the North Korean government. So when people describe our our launches as containing anti North Korean material, there's a lot of 
irony involved in that mm. because this is material that comes from that which was published by the North Korean government, is acknowledged to be published by the North Korean government in its United Nations, in its reply to the, the UN Religious Freedom and Human Rights Reports, and um, that it is material that we launch using only high-altitude balloons. Those are totally different than what most people are accustomed to seeing in news reports with kind of those tall vinyl balloons that you'll see the other launchers use. High-altitude balloons are essentially weather balloons, and um, they float up to twenty to 30,000 feet, uh, sorry, twenty to 30,000 meters, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bibles are actually inserted inside. That The difference in air pressure is what causes, then, the balloon to pop. And then these, uh, these Bibles, they don't plunge down to earth, but instead they glide, and they typically will travel 40 to 60 kilometers away from where the balloon pops. Because, really? That, yeah. First of all, do you know what one of these things weighs, more or less in grams? Have you got a rough idea? I, I don't offhand, unfortunately. And the reason why, uh, the one that you're holding up, we actually use slightly different sizes and shapes. And so each of those is a little bit different. Uh-huh. But, but it would um, be less than 100 grams. Yeah, sure. They're all be. very lightweight. They okay. can, you know, they might be in the range of like 70 grams or uh-huh. a little bit more. Um, but so what the, um, the, the way that we know yeah. where the Bibles go is, is that we use computer modeling technology to be able to analyze the meteorological conditions and barometric conditions at all levels. It allows us to put in variables like how much gas we're using. We only use helium gas. We we don't use hydrogen gas. We stopped using hydrogen about seven years ago. Is that because it's flammable? Yeah. We, uh, one of the things that um, I hope we'll get to talk about is, is that even though we don't, we never have received money, nor do we share information with any government or government funded agency. um, We always have have a very good tactical relationship with police, military, and intelligence officers in Korea because they're always present at our launches. They take photos. They ask us questions about our technology. And so they know very well how we launch, what we launch. Uh, They understand that we attach GPS devices to the balloons so that we can track all of these variables. Um, So they'll, they will, they, it's, it's not that they participate in the launches, but by their tactical partnership or cooperation, they'll say, for example, you can't launch there. That is restricted military area. A better area for you guys would be over in this area. So what's been so shocking to us is, is that for 15 years, beginning in 2005, we've been getting on the order of 40,000 Bibles a year into North Korea. Typically, it's 10 to 15 launches a year. We might do 80 to 100 balloons in a, in a large-scale launch. We also do very small launches of just a few balloons. It really depends on the weather conditions and um, how many we think we can do. But in all of this time, you know, the only people that are in places that we launch, we, you know, some of the other launchers, you'll see them launch in, at Imjingak and so forth. We launch in very remote areas. The only people who are present are mosquitoes and military folks. And so when they're there, they talk freely to us. They ask us what we're doing. They have been very helpful to um, bring to our attention certain concerns that then we've developed over the years, like, for example, in relation to the environment and mm-hmm. cleanup. Our, our oh, bel- I want to come back to that. Yeah, there's yeah. A, lot, a lot to unpack there. Um, how do you know that uh, the Bible booklets um, uh, spread on uh, gusts of wind or, or yeah. hot air drafts up to 40 kilometers away rather than you know falling plummeting straight to the earth uh, at well, the point of explosion right one of the things that's very different from us and the other launchers is that they tend to use the same technology year after year mm-hmm. but what they're spending their money to do is to to develop new content yeah so that's that's one one type of balloon launch ours is the other we're launching the same thing every year yeah so we don't have to write anything because that was written 2,000 years ago what we launch we spend a lot of money every year on 
improvement of technology and safety and so forth. So uh, we actually test our balloon technology in different locations around the world uh, that have uh, similar parameters to what we experience in, in, in uh -huh. North Korea. So we actually have a very clear understanding, both uh, in terms of the, the science involved, but even in terms of uh, watching and, and seeing these things. We know what it looks like when a Bible falls to Earth from 20 to 30,000 meters. Uh, we know what it looks like when the balloon pops. You Is know, there no falling, uh, no risk of it falling on someone and causing an injury? Well, always everything is about risk mitigation. Yeah. So uh, in order to mitigate that risk, what you have to do is you have to choose launch uh, location or lo both the launch location and the destination very carefully. You have to choose the time that you launch very carefully. And so often some of the other launchers will talk about how their balloons uh, landed in Kim Il-sung University. That for us would not be a desirable target. Uh, you'll hear them say, oh, we landed a balloon on the city gate in Pyongyang. That for us would not be any of one of the areas that we target. Are you targeting rural areas? Yeah, generally what for us is a good area is um, areas that we know uh, that um, uh, the balloon or the, the Bibles uh, as they land are going to be able to be found, but they're not going to be able to uh, be gathered up through, for example, a, a prompt police search. We know uh, through uh, our research in the last 15 years, we know how authorities in North Korea respond when we do a balloon launch and knowing that information allows us then to determine where we launch, what we launch, what areas we try to reach. So there's quite a science behind mm -hmm. balloon launching, and I don't think that that has been well uh, captured through yeah. many of the reports. And I think, uh, you know, the question is how intentionally uh, that information is overlooked. I really can't say. Um, but what I can say is, is that when the authorities have said to us, the public is alarmed by what they've seen in balloon launches, my response to the authorities has been, that's because what they've seen is designed to be very alarming. So uh, some of the other launchers, part of what they do involves confrontation with the police or with the authorities. Some sort of uh, political theater. Sure, perhaps. and, yeah. and that we, we can't comment on their operations mm. because their their goals are entirely different than ours. And so we, we, we just refrain from comment. But we think it's important for the public to understand that that term balloon launching is far too broad mm -hmm as a basis for legislation. It's, it is possible, and for the last 15 years, it has been the practice that fine distinctions have been made with regard to balloon launching because it's different whether you launch with hydrogen, which is flammable, mm -hmm. or helium, which is not. It's different if, if a launcher... Um, for example, will uh, will launch without much regard to environmental conditions, or for example, in our case, uh, as the police know, we always return to our launch sites for cleanup. We do it for two reasons: one is we want to be good citizens, and number two is because our equipment is really expensive. So and the equipment being well, you've got the you've got the weather balloon, right? Which but but is those on, things, uh, as you say, they explode each time, so sure. you're not going to get them back. No, but there are times, for example, where you might have, uh, uh, if for example, a balloon may have a leak in it. Mm -hmm. And so it may, uh, in a leak, it may return to, or may land in, a, in an area nearby. It's rare, but it's important that it happens. And you can you, track that with your GPS sure, yeah. devices. And then you would be able to, for example, if, if a GPS became detached, mm -hmm. you'd want to recover the GPS. I mean, the balloons are expensive. The GPS devices are expensive, the tracking of it. So when people ask, why do you do it? Mm -hmm. You know, balloons are only about 10% of the overall work that Voice of the Martyrs Korea does. And we actually have many different ways that we get the Bible into North Korea. Mm. But when it comes to the reaching the southern third of North Korea, now the northern two-thirds are better reached through point-to-point uh, -point delivery, mm -hmm. which is to say people bringing 
individual Bibles into the country and distributing them. And that, of course, happens a lot. You know, radio broadcasting is really key. But Mm -hmm. in terms of actually delivering physical Bibles into the southern third of North Korea, there is nothing that matches uh, Bible balloon launching in terms of volume or accuracy. So, okay. just to to stick with the uh, the balloon launches and, and the uh, the risk of of things falling from mm-hmm. the sky. So, you're saying that uh, generally your understanding about the uh, the booklets themselves is that uh, they will fall in a way and at a time and in a location that will not injure people. Yes, and why that's important to us is that if let's say for example these are actually machine shop too, um, you wouldn't be able to tell. But the way that these are printed and designed is that they're designed to scatter. If what happens is that a balloon were to pop and then everything just came straight down, it would be very easy for North Korean state security agents or police or military to mobilize and gather those. How many might be in one balloon? Uh, You could have anywhere from two on the low end to maybe 20 on the high end. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about taking 20 of these Bibles and spreading them out in in a radius of 60 kilometers, you can understand why it's very difficult for mm. North Korean state security agents to mobilize or military more likely to mobilize to, to gather up all of those Bibles. Now, what about the uh, the GPS thing? When that falls after the balloon bursts at 20,000 meters high, uh, that that would be a bit heavier than a uh, than a booklet and a more concentrated volume. Isn't that a risk to people? Well, again, the key is risk mitigation. It involves uh, having a really clear sense of what the launch path is. So that's why we're not simply attaching the GPS device to the balloon and saying, well, let's see where this one goes. But always we're launching on the basis of the computer modeling. And the computer modeling gives us the complete expected track. And we're tracking that literally. You know, we're, we're, we're looking now at weather conditions hour by hour, 10 days out out around the clock uh, on a year year long basis. So as a result of that, we can know where GPSs are going to fall. And so you have to make sure as you're dealing with with safety issues, you want to be thinking of both your launch location. So you want to be away from citizens. You and and again, that's where authorities in South Korea have been very helpful to us. Then you want to think in terms of your material in transit. So in the event of, for example, that you have a balloon that uh, has a leak to it or you lose a GPS device, you want to make sure, for example, that you're, you're launching an area that's not going to be dangerous. You want to make sure your GPS, when the balloon pops, is going to be in an area that is an unpopulated area. You're going to want to launch at a time where people generally aren't out and about. And then you're going to want to make sure where the balloon, where the Bibles land, uh, that they're going to spread out rather than landing in one, ca- in one place. Mm. So all of that is the science of balloon launching. And we're fortunate because we have aviation aeronautical engineers working with us uh, throughout this 15-year process uh, to be able to address each of those issues. And we continue to improve. You know, every year, as I say, we continue to spend more money mm-hmm. on technology that improves the accuracy and safety of our launches. As you say, it's about risk mitigation, but of course there's uh, there's no way to say that no one would could ever be injured by a, fly, a falling GPS device. No, that's and that's that certainly true. I think the... Um, there what, is a tragic irony there of something falling from the heavens uh, sent by a Christian group and potentially injuring somebody or worse, you know, if there's reaches terminal velocity. Yeah, I think the the there what I would say is is that the uh, one of the things that has been true about our activity in 15 years is the North Korean government has not hesitated to to uh, identify what they might consider potential problems with that. Some of the things that we know is is that um, uh, for example, sometimes people will say, well, yeah, but if somebody gets a Bible, they pick it up, they could be unwittingly. Uh, picking up something that we all know is very dangerous. Mm. But as you can see in looking at the Bible, it's clearly identified as a Bible right from the, the literally the moment that you open the cover. Often people aren't aware that North Koreans are taught 
what is a Bible, what is a church, what is a missionary, what is a pastor, uh, from the time they're in grade school. And so there are simply no reports uh, of anyone who accidentally picks up our Bible and is sent to a concentration camp, or for example, in our safety record, we're very thankful uh, to God for the safety record that we've been able to demonstrate. As mm. we've talked to the authorities, that's one of the things that we've raised as a concern is, is that we understand uh, the importance of public safety and have always demonstrated that through the amount of time and money and effort we use to make sure to keep the launches safe. Is the Bible a banned book in North Korea? Well, there you'd have to answer on two levels. One would be on a legal level, and the other would be on a, on, a, on a lived level. On a legal level, according to the North Korean Constitution, all North Koreans are guaranteed freedom of religion. As a document that North Korea produced, it was the longer, longest document in this regard that they produced in response to the, the, um, a North, uh, in, in response to a UN Human Rights Report. And in that document, which is available even in English translation, it says all North Koreans are free to follow any religion all North Koreans have chosen the Juche ideology. So this is, this is the North Korean government's uh, statement about, um, and it's interesting that they classify Juche in relation to religion, which often they will otherwise uh, not do. But the other thing is at the level of uh, the experience of people inside North Korea, the univocal testimony on the part of defectors as well as those that we have contact with inside North Korea is, is that the Bible is not uh, freely circulated or read. Um, although the North Korean government did this translation and published it, along with uh, several other religious books from other, other faiths, uh, it has not been the testimony of anyone that these are uh, books that are available to people in the general public in North Korea. Are there potential punishments uh, for a North Korean who was found with a Bible in their possession? Uh, absolutely. And so, what, are, what, the, what, what do you know of uh, in terms of potential punishments? We have we have a number of well documented cases, uh, not only from religious organizations, but even, for example, from the UN Commission of Inquiry into North Korea. Uh, just Judge Michael Kirby, one of the things that he noted was he said that greater work needed to be done in in researching in areas about uh, religious persecution. He said that he felt it was it was the least well developed. And he urged churches and Christian NGOs to continue to develop more reports and stories. So North Korean Human Rights Database has done a good job at that. The, the UN Commission on Inquiry has done a good job of that. And I, I believe that Voice of the Martyrs Korea has likewise been able to, um, to document the situation of those who have engaged in any kind of Christian activity. Not only is it illegal to possess a Bible, but I think the general consensus among not only uh, Christian human rights organizations, but secular, is, is that even simple Christian activities like, for example, bowing your head in prayer, uh, would be considered a seditious activity. In addition, uh, contact with a missionary is still uh, one of the uh, questions that anyone who goes into North uh, goes from North Korea into China, either as a as a as a registered worker or to visit relatives in China, they all will say that that question is at the top of the list. Have mm -hmm. you encountered a Christian worker? Have you encountered a missionary? Okay, but in terms of specific punishments for holding a Bible, we don't know yet what that could be. Whether that involves a jail term or the whole family being sent to a camp, or, well, or North, worse. You know, North Korea is very uh, circumspect with regard to religious charges. They're sensitive to how that would be portrayed around the world. So, for example, some of the stories that 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 have been popularly told, uh, which which do not appear to be credible, would be, for example, stories of people who were found with a Bible and then they were publicly 
executed, but given a chance to make a final statement or sing a hymn. Uh, there's a story that we've heard that uh, uh, some organizations share about people being run over with a steamroller I've while they story. share Christian hymns. Those do not appear to be well attested. Uh, Voice the Martyrs Korea, our criteria is we must have at least three independent sources to be able to publish a story. So that's a really high standard. There's a lot of information that, that we've heard. Uh, it may be true, but we simply don't publish it. But one of the things that we've noted is a, is, is, is a common theme about how North Korean jurisprudence works. One is guilt by association. That is to say that Christianity is, is accounted as a crime against the state. As you well know, there's two systems of justice in North Korea. One is ordinary crimes, the other crimes against the state. Christian activity would be considered a crime against the state. It is treated accordingly. And as a result of that, anyone who is known to have associated with those who have committed those crimes uh, are also brought into custody. The second thing is, is that we just have not seen well-documented cases where the North Korean government is giving people a chance to make famous last words, mm-hmm. final statements, engage in symbolic action. Typically, uh, the, the the documentation uh, that, that both that we've done and that other responsible organizations have done would say that what happens is that people disappear. And they are typically charged not with uh, religious-type offenses, but they're charged with uh, crimes like sedition, um, uh, attempts to overthrow the state, uh, contact with foreign operatives. Those are the kind of uh, ways that they're charged. Mm. Now, when and how and why did you start this project of sending Bibles into North Korea? So we started Voice of the Martyrs Korea 18 years ago. And at that time, in the first meeting that was arranged for us with underground North Korean Christians, and I might just note parenthetically that when my wife and I started this ministry, uh, what we noted was that most of the work that w- was being done by either South Korean missionaries, and they were doing it according to what you might think of as South Korean mission modalities. They were using South Korean Bibles and how South Koreans operate around the world and sharing their faith, or it was being done by international Christian NGOs. But it to us, it seemed like what needed to be done is people should talk to ordinary North Korean Christians and ask them, what, what do you need? What, what can we do for you? How can we support you in your work? And so in this first meeting that was arranged for us that took place in China, we met with underground North Korean Christians, and the conversation was very eye-opening. And they said to us, there's two things that we need you to do. So they, one of the things that they noted, and it's something that we've seen to be true with all of the different lines that we work with in North Korea. We work with many different disconnected groups of Christians in North Korea. But they do a, a significant amount of work on their own. And I've I've documented that in my book, These Are the Generations. But they said there's two things that we need you to do from outside of North Korea. One is um, uh, we need Christian material sent by balloon, and the second is is that we need the, the Christian material broadcast on the radio. They noted that radio broadcasting was being done, but it was being done in South Korean dialect, and typically the broadcasts were of the order of either uh, what we might call a prosperity theology on the part of uh, the South Korean broadcasters or uh, the broadcasters saying the reason in North Korea you are suffering is because you, you bowed to the Shinto shrines. And so there was not broadcast that was being done of what we might call persecution theology, which is why am I suffering if what I am doing is what God tells me to do? So 18 years ago, we made those first North Korean Christians a promise. We said that we would figure out how to do radio broadcasting and balloon launching, and we would continue to do it as long as we were able. Well, it took my wife and I a couple of years to figure it out. But um, beginning in 2005, we launched our radio broadcast, which we continue to do and air four times a night. It's done by North Korean voices, and it is all Christian content. None of it is 
political, none of it is contemporary current events or any of those kinds of things. And every night that we've been able to do balloon launches since 2005, meaning any, any night that, we, that, that meet our criteria for launch, mm-hmm. we've been out there launching. And that's our, that's our continued ministry strategy. So that, that is still in operation as we speak. Is it perhaps not a little disingenuous to say that you're doing this to reach specific persecuted Christians in North Korea who have asked for Bibles to be delivered since you are sending them in non-targeted scattergun drops? No, so we're not. Our, our our launches that we do into North Korea are not targeting underground North Korean Christians. They are partnering with them in their request to help them reach the southern third of North Korea to distribute the Bible in that area. So the 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 almost the near totality of the Bibles that we launch would be reaching people that were not Christian. And so, that's your goal. Our goal is to support underground North Korean Christians. So why we do the balloon launch is because they they've asked us to do that. So in our view, the most basic thing that, that is true of Christians is, is that when there are other Christians that are in distress, the Bible calls us to support them, to take care of their families if, if family members are in prison, and it calls us to partner with them. And so as, as Richard Wormbrandt, uh, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs Worldwide, said more than 50 years ago, as a persecuted Christian, he said, give us the tools and we'll complete the work. And so what North Korean Christians have asked us to do as Christians around the world and the Voice of the Martyrs organizations in the 15 different countries help us with this work in, uh, in not only financially, but interestingly, even now they will write, uh, we, we, they'll, they'll trace out words in Korean that we give to them. Let me see, this, this, the Bible that you have here doesn't have one of those, but it, uh, they, they'll do these little things that are in the form of stickers and they say in Korean, they say, God is alive. And so it gives them a chance to participate to support underground North Korean Christians. So we are partnering with their strategy, and typically, although we, we do have ways of getting Bibles to underground North Korean Christians inside North Korea, this is in support of their efforts to spread the Bible in their country. I wonder, if you were uh, to meet a group of uh, North Korean Christians today, um, perhaps in China, perhaps here, perhaps on the internet, who said to you, Pastor Foley, Thanks very much, but please don't send any more Bibles. It's too dangerous, uh, and and we have enough. What would be your response? I uh, I would be completely shocked and surprised. One of the things that I think is so so little publicized with regard to ordinary North Korean citizens is how distant this uh, uh, this purported peace process is for them. On a day to day basis, uh, their life is quite insulated from what uh, Westerners or South Koreans may experience as, as, as the primary conversation regarding international relations. So what we find is, is that although there is considerable diversity among the North Korean underground community, they all actually do come from the same common theological root, which was uh, Christianity, Protestant Christianity, first came to Korea, the Korean Peninsula in the 1880s. And it came uh, by way of China through a, a, a Scott missionary whose name was John Ross. So uh, it came, uh, interestingly, through the translation of Bibles by people who at that point weren't even Christian. So as the Bible was translated and as, as the translators themselves uh, came to become Christian, they themselves brought 15,000 Bibles inside North Korea at a time where it was uh, completely illegal and extremely dangerous. So when the first Western missionaries actually came uh, inside Korea, this is like Appenzeller, Underwood, what surprised them was that Christians were already in 
uh, inside Korea, and actually had come to Appenzeller and Underwood to be baptized. Why did they come, or why were they Christian? The answer is, is that from the beginning, Korea is unique because it is the only country in the world where the Bible preceded missionaries into the country. So most of the foundational work that was done in Korean Christianity was not done by missionaries. In fact, up until the end of World War II, more than 90% of all of the Christians in the Korean Peninsula were in Pyongyang. It was only uh, with the, the, the time of partition that many uh, Christians fled south. Uh, some remained, and uh, their descendants continue to this day, and an estimated 100,000 Christians by most reliable estimates. You'll hear far higher numbers, uh, but I can, I can explain to you why those higher numbers uh, are, are likely not accurate. Okay, but none, nonetheless, the, the, point, the, the, the point is, is that mm -hmm. Christianity from the beginning has always been Bible Christianity. So whereas uh, Christians in other parts of the world might associate Christianity with, for example, pastors, going to a church building, engaging in, in prayer events, interestingly, in Korea, when we go back to 1887 and following, the root of Christianity, particularly in North Korea, has been called Bible Christianity. And Christians have understood that their work is that they, they either individually or collectively gather to read the Bible and to try to do what it says. This is why South Korean Christians have such a difficult time answering the question, are there Christians in North Korea? Because the Christianity in North Korea is not a pastor-based or pastor-led Christianity. In fact, most North Korean Christians will never see another Christian outside of their family in their own lifetime. Uh, they don't gather together in church buildings, and their practices are quite different than South Korean Christians or Christians in many other parts of the world. But the, the centrality of the Bible becomes key, and so it would be, it would be passing strange uh, for North Korean Christians to say, hey, it's really dangerous, because their life is by definition dangerous. Of the 100,000 estimated Christians in North Korea, and this is not just our estimate, it's Amnesty International and uh, USCIRF and various state, U.S. State Department. Right, but if, if they said, for example, uh, look, let us handle the uh, dissemination of the Bible in North Korea, we're doing it by other means, you know, we're uh, writing out copies of pages sure. by hand, we're, we're smuggling it in, in different ways, rather than... Um, sort of, you know, spectacular sky drops, uh, let us take care of it. Uh, w would that discourage you or make you think again about the work that you're doing at all? I, I would answer hypothetically yes, but let me qualify that in two ways. Number one, all of the projects that we do, we do because they've been commissioned by underground North Korean Christians. So there's nothing that we do because we think it would be a good idea or because we're missionaries reaching North Korea. So our organization is a cooperative effort between North Korean Christians and Christians internationally. I know, but they're just the, the small groups of Christians that you happen to meet. How representative are they of all uh, North Korean well, underground Christians? Well, that's an important question. And one of the things that I think is not well understood is, is that North Korea is thought of monolithically, mm -hmm. whereas in truth, North Korea is a, is, is a collection of different geographies and demographies. Sure. And so we reach North Koreans wherever they're found. That doesn't just mean inside North Korea, and it doesn't just mean in defector settlements here in South Korea. It means uh, Russia, Mongolia, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, Middle East. You'll find um, both North Koreans and North Korean Christians in all of those places. You'll find them in Southeast Asia. And so when we talk about North Korean Christians, that's actually a misnomer. There's actually three broadly different categories of North Korean Christians. There are North Koreans who have become Christian uh, through the efforts of foreign missionaries, 
and you'll normally find those clustering along the border between North Korea and China. Mm-hmm. They have uh, their their kind of Christianity is 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 much more identifiable in terms of South Korean characteristics. The second group that you'll find is you'll you will find um, people that are we call them inert, which is to say that historically they come from Christian families because Christianity was widespread in North Korea. Christians were in a position of influence and land ownership, and so they are actually Christians. Uh, uh, people would be surprised that there's Christians of, at high levels of government in, in in North Korean society, but they are inert. Even if they are known to come from a Christian background, they've made a pledge not to be able to, not, not to uh, publicly share their faith. The third group is the group that, that would be most readily identifiable as underground Christians. These are people who from generation to generation have continued the practice of Christianity within uh, North Korea. But even among them, what you'll find is, is that there's, there's considerable difference and diversity because of the um, regional distinctives, because of the different denominations that did uh, mission work. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, for example, there are some North Korean Christians, the only thing that they know about Christianity is the Lord's Prayer, and they hold on to it tenaciously. There are other groups that know, for example, only the Apostles' Creed, and so they understand Christian belief in terms of the Apostles' Creed. There's a very large segment of North Korean Christian culture which is built around the Ten Commandments. And so each of these should be understood distinctively. So when we say North Korean Christians say this or North Korean Christians say that, there's actually, even though you're talking about a relatively small population, it's a very diverse population. And as you would expect now, pushing into four generations where um, they have been largely unable to coordinate or communicate with each other, uh, 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 significant variations have sprung up. This is why in South Korea, you'll sometimes hear South Korean Christians say, I don't think those North Koreans are Christian because they don't meet the South Korean standard for Christianity. What we've said is, if the North Korean government will kill you for being Christian, we're willing to consider that an appropriate theological definition for what passes as Christian. Okay, but you're not sure that the North Korean government does, in fact, kill people for being Christian? We no, of course we're certain right. of that. You are yeah, certain of that? absolutely. Yeah, I think, it's, I, I think it's been documented without dispute. And what we would say is, is that the, the period of, of greatest loss of life was the period that extended from the early 1950s on through the 1970s. And so uh, that that becomes a period where uh, documentation still existed, uh, both within the North Korean state that's been, been, been able to be um, now publicized. It's also the period from which you've got now a large defector population from which you can draw. It's not well known, Jekyll, that in the U.S., uh, sorry, in the U.N. Commission of Inquiry report that none of the testimonies were, were more recent than seven years. The newest testimony they have is seven years old. So you have these different periods of time. And to say that from 1948 on through the present, North Korean Christians have been persecuted is true, but not generally helpful because the nature of that persecution changed. Mm. In 1948, the persecution took the form of, for example, that the Korean Christian Association began to hold elections on Sunday, and it put Christians on the horns of a dilemma. They had to decide either to go to church or to be able to vote in both Christian and national elections. So that would be more pressure. Then you go into the period in the in into the 1950s, you have well-documented cases where in public schools, uh, teachers uh, ordered their students to literally tear pages out of the school books that were being studied because they contain Christian or Christian-friendly material. You move into the 1970s, and there you have testimonies of house-to-house searches and the, the burnings of Bibles. Uh, strong emphasis 
uh, in that time period on the elimination of a Bible's text. You have the conversion of church buildings uh, following the close of the Korean War into today either Kim Il-sung research centers or other community uses. So again, when we have general statements like North Korean Christians or persecution, uh, those are generally true, uh, but we need to drill down into the specifics of saying uh, that persecution varies from region to region. It's not that, that different regions are more or less tolerant. It's that it takes different forms. And so um, documenting that becomes really key. That's the main concern that Voice of the Martyrs Korea has with other organizations that, that, that um, publicize North Korean uh, Christian suffering is that often um, they will uh, they will publish stories that are not well documented, and generally, if it's if it's bad, they believe it, and so that's kind of the safe bet. They think, well, it sounds bad, and so uh, we're going to believe it and publish it. But it is obscured the fact that um, that uh, persecution has has a has a method to its madness within North Korea. And so it's different if you're in Pyongyang versus if you're in Chongjin. It's different if, if, if you are uh, a North Korean who became a Christian through South Korean missionaries, or if you come from a historically Christian family. All of those things are very different, and they will determine whether you have been exiled to the countryside, whether you're immediately killed or executed, whether you're put in a labor camp, a concentration camp. And so it's a much broader subject and more detailed than, than has often been uh, acknowledged. Okay, thank you. That is a very comprehensive answer. I do have a lot more questions to go through, so if I can encourage you to be a little m- more, a uh, little briefer. I know you're a, a communications expert. <laughs> you have to ask me expert. more specific questions. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, so you uh, occasionally meet North Korean defectors in South Korea who have come into contact with your materials. What do they say about it? Well, what we find is that about 30% of North Koreans who come into South Korea have had some prior exposure to Christianity, either inside North Korea or along the defection trail. Um, In the earlier days of defection, um, there was a lot more Christian activity. Today, it's a lot more uh, broker-driven than it used to be. You'll find both our materials and the materials of other, other people. So um, the the materials that, that we use, we don't encourage defection. In fact, we actively discourage it. So when we uh, get materials into the northern two-thirds of North Korea, you find a more immediate reaction to that because most defectors are still coming from Hamgyong province. Mm-hmm. And so we'll get more reaction to things we put into Hamgyong province than we do, for example, um, balloons that we launch with the intention of reaching the southern third of North Korea. You've written a couple of articles for NK News. Our subscribers can go on the website, nknews.org, and find them. The first one in May 2018 was titled, Balloons for Peace, Why Sending Media into North Korea by Air Must Continue. And in this piece, you argue that balloons containing Bibles are a necessary and important part of the peace process between building uh, peace between the two Koreas. What's your understanding of peace, and how is it built or created? My own background um, in graduate study is um, in alternative dispute or conflict resolution. Uh, one of the principles in alternative conflict resolution is, is that peace involves uh, contact at a number of levels. Some of them are governmental levels, but in addition, the contact between ordinary people becomes central to peace. And so when we think about peace, we think about uh, unmediated contact between North and South Korean people, contact that's unmediated by the government. So you might think of, for example, Jacko, when you think about in in Europe on the fall of um, the Berlin Wall, 
often the South Korean government and North Korean government will talk about how that, that happened through increased tourism or watching each other's TV programs. But what we'd like to highlight is, is that it happened because of greater person-to-person unmediated contact between ordinary East and West Germans. We see that same pattern in Poland and other former Eastern Bloc or Soviet countries. Mm-hmm. We see it. We see it in in South Africa with the the uh, reconciliation process. Government has a role to play, but generally that role to play is to try to create opportunities for unmediated contact. The present process between North and South Korea, the vision is for mediated contact, much like what we see with family meetings, where certain people are selected uh, and um, those certain people are given a certain time and place and parameters for meeting. In our view, that's a, that, that what we certainly understand if that's, if that's what the government feels it needs to pursue. But in our view, that is, a, that is one aspect of a much wider peace process that actually should be held in the hands of ordinary North and South Korean people who didn't build the DMZ. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to interrupt and read a short quote from you fro- uh, from this article. Uh, in fact, one shows respect by doing one's part for peace, making one's unique contribution, whether governments like it, understand it, or can fit it into their own process. Authentic peace is not a spectator sport, not a one-track effort, not an orderly three-act play. It is not so much negotiated by gov- governments as it is recognized by them. That is, peace breaks out, not altogether different than how war does so basically you seem to be arguing that people should do whatever they feel leads to peace on their own initiative if a more uh now here's a hypothetical if a more militant christian group or non-christian group decided that the cause for peace would best be served by going into north korea and in an unmediated way killing its leadership would you support this as a kind of civilian peace building no the um First, let me note that um, the and thank you, by the way, for reading so much of my quote. I was going to say I don't really have much to add to it, <laughs> but what I would say is is that that um, uh, it's it's it, it is possible to make distinctions between peace and people going into a country to be able to kill its leaders. In my view, that's that's not a, a too difficult distinction to make. I think the key is is that in a peace process, um, uh, um, and in an authentic peace process. The, the, the work of ordinary citizens uh, should not only be permitted. I mean, even that's a kind of an interesting phrase. Uh, it's a very natural process uh, when people share the same blood as they do between North and South Korea, uh, uh, Koreans and China, Koreans and Russia. Uh, it's a very natural process um, because their families are often divided by political barriers. Uh, for their communication to continue. We know, for example, even from the Ministry of Unification, that the percentage of North Korean defectors maintaining regular monthly contact with their relatives inside of North Korea is quite high. And so um, there's there's a good example of person-to-person communication, which furthers peace because it enables contact between families. All right, then I'll give you a, a more realistic hypothetical. If a group of South Korean university students tomorrow decided that peace can be built by walking up to Panmunjom and demanding that they be allowed to cross the demilitarized zone to uh, into North Korea to meet with like-minded North Korean students to have a big talk about peace and unification, would you argue that they should be allowed to go as they please and government should simply not stand in their way? In, in traditional civil disobedience discourse, the way that that would be looked at is is that all of us should pursue our own conscience and yet be subject to the authorities. So in this particular case, the march to Panmunjom should, of course, be permitted. But uh, North Korean and South Korean authorities have the 
of course, the, the constituted right to stop them. That's one of the things that makes it so difficult for people to understand our position as compared to, say, for example, freedom fighters in North Korea, is, is that in our case, what we believe is, is that God has called us to do balloon launching, not through some spooky spiritual voice or tinfoil hat that I wear that I get special messages from God, mm-hmm. but just because of the fact that in the Bible, one of the things that Christians are called to do is to spread the teachings of Jesus Christ, and we're to do it in partnership with other Christians. We have this responsibility to obey God, but we do it in a way that's subject to the government. So all citizens of South Korea are, by definition, subject to whatever punishments the governments decide to mete out. And so we, in, in civil disobedience discourse, what we would say is, is that, that um, doing what we're, we're called to do and what our consciences dictate becomes key. But we do it in such a way that we remain subject to the authorities. And in fact, a lot of what happens in, in, in uh, civil society is that when authorities respond to peaceful protesters or marchers or activists, then um, their own predilection towards violence and authoritarianism is exposed. So in this particular case, what the South Korean public has been told is that balloon launching is quite dangerous. And so um, as we have gone about our process, the one thing we did that we've never done before in 15 years is is that we took uh, North Korean uh, NK News journalists with us to document the process. Public could see for itself. And now um, the South Korean government is deciding whether to prosecute us. And they have to decide is what we've done uh, indeed. A, uh, does it does it put the nation at risk through um, uh, uh, they, they've they've told us it's against litter laws. It's against outdoor advertising laws. It's against the um, what is it called? I'm trying to think of the English translation. National security, dis- law? Na- national disaster safety. Ah. So typically national disaster safety is used um, to deal with issues like hurricanes and other natural disasters. So what the South Korean government is going to need to do is to decide whether charging me for uh, launching 40 Bibles by balloon uh, puts this nation uh, at risk according to the national disaster safety law. Yeah, I want to come back to that matter uh, in, a, in a bit, but the, uh, there's a third factor I'd like to introduce in the um, uh, my hypothetical scenario that I introduced you before about the university students walking north. There's a complicating factor that you, mm. you've uh, perhaps forgotten or weren't aware of, and that is that the United Nations Command Military Armistice Commission uh, it has complete jurisdiction over the demilitarized zone. And so whether or not the South Korean or North Korean governments would stop the students from going up there uh, without permission from UNCMAC, they wouldn't be getting through the demilitarized zone anyway. And yeah. that's that's not a matter of national laws. That's a matter of the armistice, sure. which I, is, which is I, a, a separate... I speak, I speak from the basis of our experience that in order to get anywhere near the border, you're going to have to cross through a military, that's, a military that's the, zone. Uh, the, the civilian control yeah. area, yeah. But, but I think, Jekyll, that's a good point. When you say they have absolute control, one of the things that I I think that this situation raises is the question, what control do we as citizens have over the process of peace in North and South Korea? Now, some people would believe that the only control we have is the ability to to agitate for changes in laws. That's important. But in our view, it overlooks the fact that great changes in societies have been wrought by peaceful activity, even when that peaceful activity is completely submitted to the government. So we believe that that is what is at root here. The issue goes much deeper than the Christian goal of getting Bibles into North Korea. It goes to the issue of do private citizens have the right to engage in peaceful activity, to have private relationships with North Korean people? Mm-hmm. And so the um, the efforts to curtail the activity of Voice of the Martyrs Korea are not only issues that relate to national security, but they will have strong impacts on freedom of speech in Korea overall. 
Okay. Um, now, you, cl- you claim that the Bible extracts that you send to North Korea are the same text as that which is published by the North Korean state, The uh, just for our listeners there, uh, the North Korean... Uh, Christian Federation in 1990 published a, uh, a translation of the Correct. Bible. In it's, the, so, so it's based on that translation, but there's, there are there are differences in two ways. One is is that uh, the the North Korean government uses the term Hanalnim to refer to God, which is not the the way that um, traditionally Protestant Christians have referred to God. So, we but it s- is the way that South Korean uh, Catholics refer to God. So that's in the correct. South Korean Catholic Bible. Hananim uh, is is the word for God. Why was there a, an important need to change that to uh, to they, a, a, a way that a North Korean would recognize? Ah, this is clearly not a North Korean Bible. It was done in consultation with North Korean underground Christians who used the term Hananim rather than Hananim. One of the things that's very important for North Korean underground Christians is that when they gather together for worship, they don't use the word Hananim; they use the word Hananim, and so they they. Uh, encouraged us to use the word Hananim because of the fact that it corresponds to their historic usage. Okay, that's one question that you've preempted. What was the other area of the text that you uh, admit is, is different from that which is published by the North Korean uh, Christian Federation? Can't remember. What is it? You okay. <laughs> yeah, but there is a, uh, a two-page letter at the front oh, of the booklet, yeah, right. which so is it's not, not part the... of the Bible text, but Correct. it signs your name uh, in Korean as Eric Polimoksa, which is clearly a non-Korean name. Now, if there's one thing that the North Korean state says consistently about Christianity is that it's a foreign religion and it's usually an American religion. So it's a, uh, it in fact often describes Christianity as a handmaiden to American imperialism, uh, Christian missionaries as cat's paws to American imperialists. You can see I've read these sure. uh, propaganda words. I've memorized them. So having your name, a clearly non-Korean name, on the second page of the book, it almost seems to be playing to North Korea's negative stereotype as Christianity being an invading religion thrown from the heavens sure. by an angry group of American imperialists. Why would you uh, feel it necessary to publish that letter in your tracks? Uh, and, and further, because I know your answer is going to be a long one, so I'm going to get in two <laughs> questions here. Further, uh, wouldn't it be, uh, it seems to me that if you wanted to slip Bibles into North Korea in whole or in part in a way that doesn't get the North Korean state involved in this, the best thing to do would be to make something that looks as identical as possible to the North Korean printing and then strew that into North Korea so that if any North Korea was caught with it, they could say they got it from a market stall or a used bookstore rather than it obviously having fallen from the sky. Yeah. Good. Uh, so, so just to clarify again, that the, the, you were saying two textual changes to the Bible, but actually the one, the only textual change is 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 the the name for God to standardize to the Protestant. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, or, I haven't. Yeah. Got, this booklet that I've got is the uh, uh, the Gospel of Saint Luke yes. and the Book of Acts. I have not gone, listeners. I have not gone through the entire text comparing it to a North Korean Bible to see right. uh, no, what's been changed. The reason it's funny, I have to note, is just parenthetically, is is that often people uh, South Koreans when they read the Bible, they send us spelling errors and grammar errors in the Bible, and they tell us to change those. But we've maintained the original uh, in fidelity to to that original version. But as to the letter, again, this was a decision that we made in consultation with underground North Korean Christians, and it was precisely for the reason that you've specified. The interesting thing is, is that as we showed the Bible to North Koreans, they said, is they asked the question, is this the version that the South Korea or that the North Korean government has printed? And we said, no, we printed. And they said, that is a real concern because if North Koreans had the sense that this was printed by the government, it would be particularly dangerous to them. It would be very easy for the North Korean government to take such people and to be able to put them uh, under 
uh, the, the worst possible penalties, unawares. And so we want to make sure that anyone who finds our Bible is clear that it is not the Bible that is printed by the North Korean government, but in fact is sent by a foreign organization. This gives them the right to decide whether they themselves want to pick up that Bible because holding that Bible is exceedingly dangerous. If that note was absent, according to North Korean underground Christians and with our concurrence, the problem is, is that ordinary North Koreans could presume that they had simply picked up a book that was translated by the North Korean government the ground level experiences is that the North Korean government would not say, oh, you found that in a book stall. That's OK. Uh, let me take that away uh, from you. Let me but but go on your way and we won't punish you. If and that's... this this gets to you told me I was going to do a long answer. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fulfilling your prophecy. This gets to the issue of what should be sent by by balloon to begin with, because one of the reasons people always ask us, they say, well, it's great you send Bibles, but why don't you put other things in there like socks or candy or whatnot? The problem is that when we put materials that are intrinsically desirable, then uh, we put North Koreans in danger because of the fact that it's possible to discover those materials outside of a balloon launch. That is to say, you could just walk along and you could find a pair of socks and not know that it was launched by balloon. However, you could put those socks on and then you would be picked up by the police and then you could suffer extreme harsh punishment, even though you had no idea that you had received something from a foreign organization. By contrast, we launch only Bibles, and the Bibles clearly identify themselves as Bibles that are sent by a foreign organization, because we can't be naive or idealistic that even though in, in North Korea, the Bible is ostensibly protected by um, the Constitution, uh, but then anyone. why is the cover of the book uh, unmarked? I mean, why wouldn't you write on it, uh, this is a Bible book, uh, so that people can see without even opening it, ah, I know what this is, I'm going to leave it right here, or ah, I know what this is, I'm going to hand it into my local state security bureau. Yeah, but that, by not having it marked on front or back or spine, someone would need to open it in order correct, to find out what it is. Correct. And, and, why and, is that? Um, because of the fact that what you don't want to do is you don't want to create something that is, um, you, as far as possible, there's two two different things that you have to balance mm -hmm. in risk mitigation. One is that you want to make sure that the person who, who picks it up knows exactly what they're picking up. So no one would simply pick up the book without opening it to see what it is. Mm. The second thing is you want to make it so that, that they aren't immediately exposed to risk through the possession of it. That is, the Bibles are small enough to be tucked in a pocket or in another spot without immediately exposing what they are because the ground level lived experiences is that North Koreans will, for their own safety, uh, testify and report any activity that they find to be suspicious on the part of their neighbors. That's especially true in the southern third of North Korea in, in Pyongyang. Now, not long ago, I interviewed uh, Peter Prove from the World Council of Churches. He has met with the uh, Korean Christian Federation. That's the government-authorized uh, body of Christians, both in North Korea and outside North Korea. He said that it was important to engage with the state-approved church and Christian Federation in North Korea. What do you think of that? I think that the... the uh, I because I always try really hard not to comment on the operations of other people. Right, uh, but this is technically the same kind of thing. I sure. Mean, what I would say is, is that anyone who identifies themselves as a Christian mm -hmm. uh, and engages with North Korean Christians without uh, advocating for those in North Korea who are suffering punishments for their faith breaks the most basic biblical principle which requires us to identify with Christians who are suffering for their faith. So when a Christian organization um, encounters a state Christian organization. This is not nothing new. This happened throughout 
the uh, the period of the Soviet Union. You know, Billy Graham, for example, when he went to to to, to Russia, and of course the Graham family has a long history in North Korea as well, felt that they had done well to engage with state Christian associations. The longstanding, back to the beginning, principle that we inherited from Pastor Wormbrandt is is that the very minimum thing that we as Christians must do is to identify ourselves publicly with Christians who are suffering. So in the case of an organization like the World Council of Churches, were I the World Council of Churches, I would not be able to engage with the North Korean Christian Association without my primary focus being advocacy on behalf of Christians who are in prison. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's look now in the last 10 minutes, because we've already gone at an hour here. Our last 10 minutes, let's talk about what's happening uh, nowadays. So uh, most recently, uh, a couple of months ago, what, May, I guess, uh, there was a, a rise, the beginning of a rise of tensions with North Korea. Uh, the North Korean government applied pressure on the South Korean government to uh, cease and desist allowing uh, people, whether they be the voice of the martyrs of Korea or the freedom fighters of North Korea or Kunsem, uh, of sending things across the border uh, into, uh, into North Korea. And there were even threats of uh, kinetic action, perhaps even military action, uh, what's happening now between the South Korean government and the government of Gyeonggi province and the voice of the martyrs Korea? What's happening? Well, one thing uh, that I would note in, in our contact with the government is, is that even though the government is speaking in terms of one particular point in time, which is even they would say June to the present, we would say that this is a long process. It's important for us not to have a short memory. In April, two th- sorry, May 2018, the Ministry of Unification contacted Voice of the Martyrs Korea and said, you need to stop balloon launching. You need to stop radio broadcasting. You need to stop these other kind of activities because we're in a time of peace now. And what you need to do is to participate in our cultural exchanges in in the future, you can go with us to North Korea and you can hand out your Bibles to the people who are invited to the cultural exchanges. Sorry, was this actually... Uh... It was a phone call from the Ministry of Unification to Voice of the Martyrs Korea. And this is what the government offered you, was a chance to in visit May North 2018. Korea with they, uh, South Korean government groups and hand out Bibles at, to North Korean Christians. At a Korean hypothetical Christians. time in the future, yeah, they yeah. said, you need to stop what you're doing today so that we can, in this time of peace, move right. towards the, these kind of what they call cultural exchanges. Okay. And so this current situation um, should not be viewed as a sudden unexpected flaring of tensions. The, the stated desire to ban balloon launching is certainly even much older than this, but it, it goes back to April 2018. Since that point in time, it has been something that has brought, been brought to our attention um, through, for example, the May 2018 call, even that year when we do balloon launching and we interacted with the police, always, you know, we've been informing the police of our launches. Ahead of time. Ahead of time. So you say you, somebody calls up the police and says, look, we're going to launch at this time, at this day, in this place. Yeah, that's, and- what, that's, what it, that's, that's what it had been since 2015. This year that's changed. Um, although we, we still have been in the habit of informing uh, the police after our launches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... The, the point is, Jacko, is, is that um, to, to say that this is a sudden flare-up event is not correct. This has been a policy goal of the South Korean government, at least dating back to May 2018. And so this is something that we're not unprepared for. And actually, balloon launching has been contentious as long as we've been doing it. You know, we, we launched balloons um, during the time of Kim Jong-il's death, we launched during the sinking of the Chonan submarine. We launched during the shelling of Yongpyeong Island. And so when people say to us, how can you launch at such a dangerous moment? Our response is we've launched in far more dangerous moments. What's happening is a very intentional effort to prosecute a case in public that balloon launching is inherently dangerous. Our response to that is balloon launching 
um, should not be discussed in a broad category. We think that that what we would do is call the government back to um, cooperative, mutually respectful discussions that can preserve national security goals and at the same time preserve freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And we would point to the last 14 years of work together as a good model for that happening. Has the police or other government agencies attempted to stop your balloon launches in the last 12 months? Yes. And and have you had to call off any launches because of that kind of activity? We never we never report on uh, launch specific level activity. What we would say is is that we continue our practice of um, uh, and our commitment to go out any time that the weather uh, suits. Now, in that time period, even since 2015, each year in that time period, there have been times when the police stopped launches. It doesn't happen every year, but some years it'll happen five or six times. This current situation is particularly intense. Uh, in terms of um, uh, the, the police now saying that even any effort to transport materials for launch is illegal. And they have, uh, we have received letters from municipalities, for example, Paju City, Inchon City, Yonchon, uh, and the, those five uh, danger areas. And uh, even, for example, in, at the provincial level. In Kyungi Province. With uh, Kyungi Province and uh, Kangwon province have both made public statements. The difficulty is, is that when you ask them, what is the law that we are violating? Mm. Um, it, it really is a kind of, it's, it's, a, it's a patchwork quilt. There is no new law mm. against balloon launching, although um, there have been uh, stated desires on the part of uh, various authorities to pass such a law. Uh, but at the moment, it's being enforced uh, through a series of other laws. And what we've said, as we always say, is, is that we're fully submitted to those laws. So if the government decides that, that we littered, uh, then we will joyfully and willingly be subject to the penalty for littering. If they uh, uh, say that we're guilty of violating outdoor advertising ordinances, we'll do what we always do, which is to defend ourselves as appropriate um, according to um, the legal rights that we have. But if under law it's determined that we violated outdoor advertising laws, we'll be subject to that. When you registered the Voice of the Martyrs Korea as an NGO in Korea, uh, was this was the, uh, the the mission of sending Bibles into North Korea a stated aim? I mean, has the government been aware of that from the get-go? Yes. It's interesting to note that um, prior to uh, chartering as an NGO, we were still operating under uh, we were we had we were operating under the a- NGO status of uh, a mission organization, the English initials of which are KCCMO. Um, so we were operating under KCCMO under the stated purpose of. Um, what you'll see if you go to our website under uh, vomkorea.com, we've actually published our most recent independent audited financial statement and our NGO permit. And on there, purpose number six says to get the Bible into countries um, where Christians are persecuted or where Christianity is restricted. And so when we met with um, the Soul City um, Ministry of uh, Cultural Policy, they acknowledged uh, that um, we were in compliance with uh, the stated aims of our of our uh, charter, and so uh, whereas some of the other balloon launchers, uh, that's been a mug- much bigger issue because their their charters apparently may be different. I don't know. I haven't seen those charters. No. But as for us, um, the the people who have chartered our NGO in Seoul City, they've said, no, you are in, you, you're doing what you told us that you were going to do. But you've recently had some uh, frictions with the uh, that same office, the Office of Cultural Policy of Seoul Metropolitan Government, haven't you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, just overall this year, it's been very uh, distressing to us. You know, Voice of the Martyrs Korea, we don't receive any money from the government, any government, 
nor do we give information to the government. But this year, what we've had uh, for the first time is police or um, city officials stopping by, uh, either unannounced or calling as they're on the way at or after the close of business, um, uh, showing up and expecting to be able to see us or meet with us right away. This is a real change because in the past, we've been in in contact with these people mm. for 15 years and always they call ahead of time. They schedule appointments with us. We sit down and we talk. Now they're showing up without telling us who they are, why they're coming, mm. what their purpose is. It's very uncomfortable for us. And, and so, the governor of Kongi province has himself openly uh, accused you, your organization of some um, financial malfeasance, hasn't he? Correct. And accused me personally um, of being a spy and a um, uh, mocking Korea internationally. Um, uh, as regards our organization, he didn't single us out as being malfeasant, but he, he said that all of the four balloon launchers had committed unforgivable crimes. That's, that's his uh, translation of his phrase. Uh, he said, he, he, he said, if we had committed the, if we had done these things, we had committed unforgivable crimes, we should be investigated for fraud for embezzlement, for misappropriation of donations, and for endangerment of national security. Okay, very briefly, do you have independent auditors? Yes. Is your organization transparent about its finances In and where the money way. comes from and how it's spent? Since the very beginning, we have an annual financial audit. You can see it online. You can ask. You can look for yourself and see how much we pay for rent, mm -hmm. salaries, office supplies. We publish that information. It's even in English on our website. Is there a risk that you might be charged and prosecuted with some kind of crime? Yes, I, I think I think that's the likelihood. Uh, I think at this point in time, what we've been told, and interestingly, uh, a lot of the information uh, we get about uh, about the pending case against me, uh, I get from the same place you do, which is I read it in the news. But as regards our, our encounters with the authorities, we know that the investigation has been remanded to uh, the Seoul Police, to International Crimes Division because of, of uh, uh, my being an American citizen, uh, but that those charges are still being considered and pending. So um, we're we're expecting uh, to be summoned. That brings um, me to another uh, question. You've lived in South Korea as a foreign citizen, U.S. citizen for many years. Uh, have you ever been threatened with expulsion for uh, criminal? For sorry, have you ever been threatened with charges or expulsion from Korea because of engaging in what the government sees as political activities? I know that you yourself yeah. don't see your activities as political, but there is a, a law in the South Korean books that says that foreign citizens may not take part in any political activities, so no rallies, no demonstrations, no holding of placards, no uh, donation to political parties, no membership of political parties. Has that ever been raised with you by any never, authority? Never once. And again, mm. it's not because this is our first encounter with the authorities. I, I don't know of many organizations that are as, in, you know, there, there may be some because they receive funding from the government, but our organization is always being contacted because we're working with North Korean defectors, so their police officers are involved. We're working uh, in, in areas that always the local police are involved, uh, uh, the, the police in, in the balloon launching areas, the military, the intelligence services, never once has the issue of my expulsion been raised other than by the governor of Kyungi province who said that I should be, uh, that I am a spy who should be uh, tried for mocking Korea and after my conviction I should be expelled. Is there anything that would convince you that um, uh, your mission is complete and you can stop uh, sending Bibles into North Korea? I never thought about it. I, I only, you know, I, our, our life is uh, we get up and we do whatever God gives us to do that day. Yeah. And so um, our work is to support 
persecuted church, uh, persecuted Christians in North Korea and in other countries. And so uh, our sense from what we understand in the Bible is, is that that work will always continue. That it changes form since we've started is certainly true. And in, in the course of our 15-year history, there's projects that we've done that we no longer do because they're short-term projects or because uh, they've been exposed and, and thus are no longer effective. But um, this work of Bible balloon launching is, is not something that, in my view, becomes uh, less tenable because of the punishments that are levied against it. Ultimately, we're called to do uh, what we're given as according to our conscience, and we're called to pay the price for that. If the price is high, you pay a high price. Is it possible that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? <laughs> uh, there's probably a lot of ways in which I'm no earthly good. Um, I, I could list several. Uh, but I, I think that the, the hallmark of Voice of the Martyrs Korea is, is that the, when we look at, for example, the Bible, the Bible presents an alternative calculus of what it means to be human. According to the North Korean state, to be human means to be useful and loyal to the government. The Bible holds up an alternative calculus to that that is not held up by Korean dramas or K-pop songs. So when people say that the goal is to get Korean pop and K Korean drama into North Korea, what I would say is, is that they still present a conditional view of the value of human life. By contrast, the Bible presents an absolute view. It says we're created in the image of God, and as a result of that, uh, we deserve uh, to be treated uh, humanely, no matter if anybody thinks we're loyal or not. And so all North Koreans deserve to hear that message, and especially because of the historical relationship between the Juche ideology and Christianity. North Koreans who have never seen the Bible before, even if they don't intend to be Christian, still find it helpful to read because it helps them to understand the difference, um, you know, what it is that the Juche ideology is a distorted version of. Yeah, that is actually an interesting topic that we unfortunately didn't have time to get into today. A plug for your book. What's the title? Where can people find it? The title is called These Are the Generations. I wrote it with third generation North Korean underground Christians. It's available through Amazon, or you can get it by contacting Voice of the Martyrs Korea. You can see it on our website, viewamkorea.com. Viewamkorea.com. And you can see it if you want to read it in English. It's viewam.com. Uh, com, but you'll see the little language options, Chinese, Russian, English, and then also our, on Facebook, you can see us. You can look us up, Viom Korea. We have a Russian, Chinese language, and Korean language page. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for joining us today, Pastor Eric Foley, CEO of Voice of the Martyrs Korea. Thank you, Jackie. involved in the production of this podcast were partially funded by the Uni Korea Fund, for which we are extremely grateful.